Well, hi, you've joined CISO Talk. I just want to tell you a little bit about what's happening. This is part one of a two-part series that uh, JJ Manila and I interviewed Andy Ellis. If you don't know Andy, very prominent figure in the industry, in the security industry. Uh, he was for 22 years at Akamai, was CISO there in his last role for quite a number of years. And today he's an operating partner at Wild Ventures. He's written some books, a lot of great things that Andy's done. I think you'll find fascinating. This first part, we're, one of the things we're going to focus on is the role of the CISO. But the question of does the CISO belong in the boardroom? Is it really that level of a position? If so or not, why? So here we join uh, our interview with Andy. Well, welcome. You've joined us in another episode of CISO Talk. I'm here co-hosting with my friend and colleague, Jennifer J.J. Manila. Welcome, Jennifer. Hey, everybody. Hey, Mitch. Hey, Andy. <laughs> Speaking of Andy, we have a great guest, Andy Ellis. If you don't know who Andy Ellis is, you'll quickly find out really quick here. Um, and there's a lot of things I think we want to run by Andy. Maybe, Andy, if, if you would to give a little bit of your background, you know, your very prominent roles in some companies, we'd love to hear about it. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me here, first of all. I always appreciate that opportunity. Um, so Andy Ellis, I'm operating partner at YL Ventures right now, but I retired from being Akamai's CISO. I was there for uh, 21 years. Before that, I was in the United States Air Force doing information warfare. I always love to joke around when I'm interacting with folks in Israel who are coming out of the IDF and 8200, and I'm like, I was doing that in the last millennia. Like, let's move <laughs> forward a little bit. Um, I'm Hall of Fame CISO and the author of 1% Leadership. Amazing. Fantastic. J JJ, any thoughts on kind of topics that we want to start off with Andy? Yeah. And, you know, Andy and I've had other conversations kind of off other threads and stuff. So it's fun to bring this for all of the listeners and with you, Mitch, because we've had all of the all of the top news we've been covering um, the SEC disclosure guidelines, which are still being discussed because I think there's still a lot of confusion around what that means for the security professional in an organization. Um, and then, of course, we've had a lot of talk around AI and what that means for cybersecurity, both in offense and defense. So I'm curious about that. Um, I'm also, you know, I've met Andy so many years ago and, and followed him and consider him a, a, a voluntold mentor of mine. And uh, he did just publish a book that's awesome. Um, so, so many wonderful tidbits in here about really, you know, leading um, through example and building teams. So Andy's just a great person to bring all of these fun topics together. And um, I know Andy, and no matter what we throw at him, he's going to going to hit it out of the park. <laughs> I'm kind of like Chad GPT. I can make up an answer to almost anything. There you go. That's we'll true. just feed this directly in and it'll have our responses <laughs> as we talk. <laughs> well, let's start out with the SEC filing. You know, I think we all love those uh, statements of you shall disclose and for a material breach yep. in, in four days and we're all going like, okay, what's material? Four days really from what, you know, how does this work? Uh, interested in your perspective on it, Andy. Yeah, so this one's what's interesting. It's part of a larger conversation that I think people aren't really having, which is, is the CISO actually an executive of the company? And by executive, I don't just mean like you have a title, it's are you truly a decision maker? Are you part of the CEO staff meeting? because the people who decide if it's material is that meeting. It's the general counsel and the CEO and maybe the CFO are ultimately, like that's the group that decides if something's material. So I see a lot of people are like stressed about, well, how do I decide if something's material? The ultimate answer is you don't. Like you might say it's material, but if the general counsel says, no, I don't think this is material, 
that's what the company's going to go with. So in a sense, we're off that hook, but we're going to have a lot of stress because stress is the feeling you get when the world does not match your expectations. And so <laughs> you expect that you get to say, oh, this is material. We're going to go disclose this. And the, the other executives are like, yeah, no, have a nice day. You're going to feel a lot of stress. Now, that said, I do have a definition for materiality that people should think about, which okay. is in the wake of a breach or a vulnerability, like, are you going to dramatically reconfigure your business? Like, it's not about business ending, but it's about business altering. Like, if this gets disclosed, are you like SolarWinds that will all of a sudden say, the CISO has a blank checkbook? If so, well, that was a material event that creates a blank checkbook. If you're going to, you know, fire a bunch of executives and replace them and reorg, you know, dramatic restructurings. But if it's going to be business as usual on the other side of it, it probably wasn't material. Sort of a normal, the cost of doing business sort of lost. Yeah. We're not going to worry about it. Well, I have a question about that, actually, then maybe to, to clarify. <clears throat> so, I mean, I think for over 10 years, maybe almost 20 years now, we've joked about CISO, like the little C versus a big C as we think about them in a corporate environment. But when it comes, so materiality, when you're saying, if it's something that's business altering. Yep. So some of the other definitions I've heard from, um, you know, people managing publicly traded companies is um, that that may be predefined based on the share or stockholders expectations of what that means for them. So I'm kind of curious, like, if it if it's something that doesn't necessarily alter business, but it's a huge reputational hit that might, you know, break, uh, you know, consumer confidence and brand confidence, where do you where do you see that line shifting between those two? So I think they're really closely coupled. Like, if you have an event that is going to damage shareholder confidence, then you're going to alter your business to regain shareholder confidence, which means that that event was business altering, even if it wasn't directly. Like you might say, well, I think this should be a cost of doing business, but clearly the street doesn't agree with me. Well, that's material. And it's important to recognize that there is no regulatory definition for materiality. We define materiality in hindsight after lawsuits. Like at the end of the day, a judge and a jury decides if something was material, and so we're really are, that's why the general counsel is the one who gets to decide because they're the one with the legal experience to say, what is the thing that we will get sued for and lose? And what are we willing to risk? Like maybe it is, would be material if people found out the whole details, but we don't think they will. So we're going to say it's not material. Yeah. There's a lot of that going around too. Yeah, I, I want to come back to the, to the, the thing you talked about with the, the, and I said the, the big C and the little C, yeah. what why are we still at the position where we don't have CISOs proper as part of the leadership team? So I think it, there's a lot of reasons. One is nobody wants that leadership team to grow too big, right? You can't have more than 10 people in that room. And even that is problematic, right? So you really look at it's the CEO, it's the CFO, it's the general counsel, usually the CRO. Um, the CMOs have broken their way into that room over the last 10 to 15 years, um, you know, usually the, the head of HR. So that's six people already. And I haven't even gotten into, do you have a COO? Do you have a president? And so we're already pushing. And the CIO I didn't list because in a lot of companies, they're getting pushed out of that room. Mm -hmm. because, this, because as you move to cloud, like, why do you have a CIO doing tons of things? Um, 
And I think, so part of it is that part of it is we're a very immature career field. Um, you know, I think, you know, without, you know, giving, you know, naming our ages, you know, there were no CISOs when I was basically doing that job. Like we had to point to, oh, there was the person who was the first CISO, but realistically this title didn't exist. And in fact, my title was CSO because nobody knew what to give the title. And I got to pick and I said, well, I, I, want, I think three letters is better than four. So that was the title I went with. Like this wasn't a norm, it wasn't a standard. There's so many people who do not have a diversity of experience. They've always been back of the house. They're breakers who turned into makers, but they're not people who understand finance, who understand sales. Um, in many cases, you know, grew up very um, strong-willed, right? You had to argue a lot to get your point across. That's not gonna be welcome in that room of you coming in and being like, well, this is like an ethical de decision. Like we can only make one possible choice. <laughs> if you're not willing to compromise, nobody's gonna open the door and let you in the room. So I think some of it is that, some of it is reputational, but at the end of the day, like I, I do question, like should it be, should that person be in the room? What I worry about is organizations and really humans make decisions before they realize they've made them. And when you have that room of seven people that are running a company, the moment a topic comes up, the decision is made within minutes, even if they don't acknowledge it, right? Then they say, okay, we'll have to go to a study group, whatever. But the CEO's first impression is probably what they're going to go with at this point. And if you didn't have somebody in the room who could just say, hey, wait a second, here's the risk that we've got, bringing that risk up three weeks later is not the same as bringing it up within the first three minutes. And if nobody in the room is really looking at systemic, complex system safety, that's really the, the downside of not having the CISO in the room. What's what's the compensating measure for that then? If you don't have a CISO or a security person or, or even CIO for that matter in the, in the executive team level? Well, I think how teams are compensating is you, you know, spend a lot of money on a security team and as soon as the CISO you know, gets a, a little too much gumption and starts arguing with you, you replace them with the next one. <laughs> I don't like your answer. It's always somebody that agrees with me, right? Yeah. A lot of truth and I that. see a lot of CISOs that that's their career arc, which is they work at a company, they're doing a great job, they uncover a lot of risk, they start to bring that risk forward. And, and here's another challenge, which is who do people report to? And if you ask CISOs, they'll say, well, I report to the board you don't report to the board you give a report to the board that's a very different thing but they think that they're like independent internal audit who is an independent agency that really does report to the board and they want to come in and say like here's all of the problems and boards do not want to hear that what a board wants to hear is here's a problem and here's how we are fixing it and if we're not fixing it we don't want to hear about it because we don't want it in the board minutes that we knew about a problem that isn't being fixed and it better be something worthwhile to discuss right. with the board. And in fact, yeah. I, I discovered this working with an internal audit team who came in and said, you know, here's our findings about your organization. Like, here's the, these top three things that we want to brief the board on. And we would like your response on what you're doing to fix them. And two of them, I was like, yeah, I'll go fix this. And the third one, I'm like, I'm not fixing this. I don't think this is a problem. I'm willing to accept that risk. And they said, great, we'll take it off the list. The moment I said I wasn't fixing it, they're like, well, it's not reportable to the board then. Like, we're not going to tell them it's a problem if you're, you would argue with us. And it like, it opened my eyes to like how many risks that I brought in front of the board without stakeholder buy-in that they were going to fix it. Mm -hmm. 
And how many other CISOs do the same thing? Interesting. I think it's just some really clear thinking about that. And, uh, you know, if you're not a business person or been at that level, you haven't been in a lot of boardrooms, right? There, there's right. a whole dynamic and a process and, and how they operate and how, how uh, CEOs or presidents or whoever chairmen lead a board, right? It's a very different dynamic. Like I worked with one person who's, you never surprise the board. You already know what the answer is to all the right. things you want to get approved because it's already been socialized, la, la, la. And we don't live in a world yeah, like, like how many CISOs have you heard make some comment like, well, I need to get budget for this, so I'm going to brief the board. And, and you're like, that is that, that is like, that's a threat you can do. And I have used that threat before, like of the, I think there's a risk we have to fix. And if we're not going to fix it, I'm going to brief the board. And all of a sudden, everybody gets on in line and says, okay, let's go <laughs> fix it. But I didn't just go brief the board. I just threatened it every once in a while. And it's dangerous to do that. But that's a that's like a careful nuance that you have to learn those skills to operate at that level. Well, so then, uh, what's the well, what's the path? Because um, I, I think one of the things that comes up a lot um, talking to friends and colleagues and professionals to some of the clients, you know, I work with directly and with Ions. You know, a lot of the question is, and a lot of the conversation is, when you're when you are the person who is responsible for security, whatever the title is. Yep. What are we? What do we need to be doing? to level up, to be respected and invited into that room as a business partner, instead of the little C that's tucked down in the corner somewhere. So I think a big piece of it is, one is do pairwise relationships. Like everybody in that room, you should have the relationship with, where they want you in the room. Where if a meeting happens, like I once had this, that there was gonna be a layoff and it was the first layoff that I wasn't in the room for the planning. Like this was amazing. Like some, there was new person in HR and they're like, oh, we've got this handled. We don't need to talk to InfoSec. And they walk out of the room and you know, one of the uh, heads of product or product division calls me and says, do you know about operation X? Cause we always had code names. I said, haven't heard about it. And he's like, okay, we have a problem. You need to be involved. Here's what's going on. And he brought me over the wall cause he thought I should have been in the room. And that's what you do is you build these relationships where people know the value you bring and would value a conversation with you. And one of the, the phrases someone said to me, a boss who, you know, I didn't like for a lot of reasons, but gave me some great advice. He said, know what you're trying to achieve before you open your mouth. And too many security professionals, all they, all they really want to achieve is to be right. Mm-hmm. Like I found a thing, let me show you how smart I am. Let me show you how right I am. Well, what that will demonstrate to the other person is that you are wasting their time and they don't wanna to talk to you. If instead you say, here's what I'm trying to achieve is I want this person to fix this thing, to make this change. Here's how they would do it. I think they would do it. And so I come to them with this vision of us getting better together, then they value my input and they wanna come back and talk to me. So that's why like I had a rule which is if we found a bug in our own developed software and our own developers found the bug, it was not something brought to us by a third party that they got to specify when we would fix it. I did not pressure them. So they could come in and it could be a really bad vulnerability. Like what we, we call it, how do we call it? The requests of death, which is here's a single HTTP request that could take down a server. And sometimes we would find them ourselves and they'd come in and they'd say, here's what it is. When can we, when, when do we need to fix it by? And I said, you tell me like what works for you? Like, you know how bad this is. 
I'm not going to tell you you have to disrupt your release cycle to do it. If you think that like this one's hard to trigger and you want to take two months to get it right, go for it. Because otherwise you won't tell me about the next one. If I tell you, you have to disrupt everything and fix it right now. Well, you're the reporter and the fixer. I've just disincentivized reporting. Yeah, you're you'll speaking get a decision language right now. Like it. <laughs> <Go> ahead, <laughs> yeah. How, how about the, um, so we're kind of back to the SEC thing, the four day requirement um, to, to report a material, you know, the, uh, the devil's in the details. Well, like what, yeah. what do you have to prepare and disclose and how does all that work? What are your thoughts on that? Because yeah, so really like you send an email and we're good. Yeah, well, so first <laughs> of all, there I think there is some specific ways you have to do disclosures. But fortunately, you have a legal and finance team that knows how to report things to the SEC. So like, make sure you have that partnership. The four days is really a trap. Like, I look at it like there's language in PCI that we all know about that we know is just the trap so that after a breach, Visa can come in and say, you really weren't compliant because you were not auditing system level objects. Like if anybody you know, has done PCI recently, there's one of the, these lines in there and they never define what a system level object is. So you're always gonna be screwed on that one or on reading all of your log files. Like those are the two traps in PCI that make sure you cannot be compliant. And I think this four day rule is basically another one because it's four days from when you believe it's material. So if you start to have evidence of an incident, but you haven't yet decided it's material, I think in retrospect, the SEC is going to start the clock there. And they're going to say, well, you didn't tell us for eight days. You say, well, I didn't realize that we had lost access to this data for five days. And I suspect this is where companies are going to, in hindsight, be like, oh, I guess we did the wrong thing and we'll have nice legal battles about it. But at the end of the day, remember, materiality is your general counsel. So your job as a CISO is provide the evidence that enables your company to make a wise risk choice and then make sure it is all documented. Like, do not let yourself be thrown under the bus because you only had verbal conversations. I haven't worked with general counsels. I can imagine a relationship where General counsel, it's not in their interest to say it's material until we're ready to say it's material. Right. right? I'm not that you're, you you obviously can't go into the territory that you're hiding things, but you may not want an answer right away from your general counsel. This is material. Here's what we have to do to be prepared to say it's right. material, that we know it and, and we can show why it's material and here's how we disclose it. Mm -hmm. but it seems like one of those, don't say it until you're ready. Now, don't take forever. You know, right. I think that's it. where it's going to come down to. And I think a, a skill that CISOs will need to practice in communicating is communicating the difference between evidence of absence and absence of evidence. Hmm. Like we don't know that a bad thing has happened because we have no ability to look is very different from we have no evidence a bad thing has happened, but we knew where to look and there was no evidence. Like, and being able to communicate that clearly so that your peers are saying, oh, we're, we know this one's not material versus we have no idea if it's material or not because we had a security weakness, we weren't logging, whatever it is. What are going to be the, the consequences of missing the deadlines? Well, so I think that's what's going to be interesting. I, I'm really looking, looking forward in a grim way to seeing the SEC action against Tim Brown. Like, I really want to understand what are they going after Tim Brown for when they do this investigation? Like, is this for uh, statements that he made publicly, statements made to the SEC? 
Like, what is, is there really going to be personal liability for CISOs? Because I honestly think there should not be because they're not actually C-level executives. Like mm -hmm. we have the title, but do not have that position in the company. So that corporate liability should not extend down. That said, like right? if you're a publicly traded company, like you have to sign a disclosure as a CISO that you have briefed on relevant security risks. So that creates an opportunity for you to have some liability. You know, at the end of the day, what does the SEC do? They find companies. If they think the company's doing something wrong, you take a you know, share price devaluation for a little while. You, you know, say you're doing something new to you know, make everybody happy and you move on. So I don't actually think like these disclosure rules are the end of the world for companies. Interesting. I know we have definitions for things, but it, it still feels a little bit uh, qualitative versus quantitative. Like, there, oh, there's some, absolutely. there's some, there's a lot of discretionary judgment calls throughout this process. And, um, it sounds like that, you know, the feedback loop, if we don't have the right security professional in the room offering that guidance and input throughout, or at least hearing top down what's happening and participating in the conversation early, then that may delay things in an, in an awkward way for people. Absolutely. I think you're, you're right on the head with the qualitative versus quantitative because a lot of materiality rules that we understand are quantitative. Like we know if you miss your numbers by a certain amount, you know, that's material. You have to disclose if you have a customer that is more than 10% of your revenue because that's material. Like there's these standard accepted quantitative materiality thresholds around your revenue and your costs, but around risks, there are none. And you're absolutely right, it's qualitative. So you need the CISO, you need the general counsel, you need them to have a good relationship. So that together they can, you know, make that. And look, we're all going to be guessing until there's case law on this. Oh, Andy, I did want to ask you this too, while we're on this topic, before we, we hop off to something else. And uh, so one of the things that it, 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 I guess, common threads or concerns is that, you know, a lot of directors, board directors and executives have insurance within the company that, that covers them against certain liability. And it sounds like what I've heard from a lot of professionals is that that doesn't extend down to the CISO because they aren't, like you've just said, they're right. not actually the big C CISO. They're not right. directors yeah, guys, of the companies. Right, there's the DNO insurance, insurance for directors yeah. and officers. Yeah. And if you're not one of them, you know, getting yourself on that insurance can be hard. So, you know, I think if you're the CISO of a large public company and you're not on that, you should be talking to your own personal insurance carrier and making sure you have some coverage so that when you get sued, you have insurance that will at least cover your legal defense. Yeah. And talk through scenarios because many people get an umbrella policy and then they discover that there were writers that they were not covered for, you know, public statements they made. And it's like, oops, you know, that can be a problem.